Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the term is net worth poverty. And if you're wondering what that's all about, well, a new study from Duke University centers around understanding the full cost of child poverty. I'll speak with Christina Gibson Davis, a professor of public policy and sociology at Duke Stanford Sanford School of Public Policy. And then also, pay attention to this, a Children's Healthcare of Atlanta study found that school-age children can accurately self-swab for COVID-19 tests as compared to tests conducted by healthcare professionals. Imagine that. And also, a little bit later in the program, we're going to preview a Closer Look special coming up next week. Now, this is from a story that we actually brought to you in 2017. This month marks 24 years ago that eight-year-old Shaima Pate disappeared in the small town of Unadilla, Georgia. When I rode down the street, I saw her on the porch mm-hmm. at the other friend's house, and I went to put gas in the car. And um, then we went back to pick her up. And they said she left walking up the street towards home um, because she thought I left her because she saw me ride by Mm -hmm. going the opposite direction. She thought I left her. And um, as I rode back up the street, I didn't see her. Nobody knew where she went. Nobody saw her. And I haven't seen her since. All that's just ahead, but we'll begin with this. Thousands of households in North Georgia could be without water for the rest of the week after a flood over the weekend damaged the water treatment plant in the town of Somerville. Molly Salmon reports people in the northwest Georgia community are cleaning up after heavy rains flooded homes and businesses. The National Weather Service estimates that up to a foot of rain, and in some places even more, fell on Somerville in just a matter of hours on Sunday. Roads, homes, businesses, and the local water treatment plant were inundated. Somerville Mayor Harry Harvey says he hasn't seen flooding like this before. We do have a creek that runs through and right near the downtown area, and it floods uh, occasionally, but nothing ever to this extent. He says people had to evacuate their homes, but as far as he knows, there weren't any injuries. But he says 8,500 households and businesses don't have water and probably won't before the end of the week. We did have pumps underwater. We had uh, equipment underwater. We had electrical equipment underwater. In the meantime, local agencies are giving out bottled water and cleaning supplies. Churches in the area are helping distribute water, too. We're giving two cases per household, and we also have fans. We have hygiene products. Food. Brandon Bishop is the pastor at Central Avenue Baptist Church in the nearby town of Tryon. His church is also distributing cooked meals as people take stock of the mess left by the storm then begin cleaning up. My uncle-in-law owns a business here in town, a master's business, and all of his mattresses were, were destroyed. So he's been basically throwing everything out into a dumpster. 
and a lot of our businesses are doing that. Governor Brian Kemp has declared a state of emergency for Chattooga and Floyd counties and is visiting the area this morning. Molly Samuel, WABE News. In other news, more than 100,000 Georgians have already requested absentee ballots for the November general election. As we hear from Susanna Capaluto, mail-in balloting has become a political issue, of course, here in Georgia. Until the pandemic, mail-in voting was a small part of the overall vote tally, and records show both Republicans and Democrats used it in close to equal numbers. But mail-in balloting became so popular among Democrats during the pandemic that the 2020 presidential election was not decided in Joe Biden's favor until all the mail-in ballots were counted. The following year, Georgia's Republican-controlled legislature made it a bit more difficult to apply for an absentee ballot. It now requires a valid ID to accompany the application. Also, the window to apply for an absentee ballot closes 11 days before an election. Republicans say that makes the process more secure. Democrats say... It was a way to make it more difficult to vote by mail. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. Uh, speaking of elections, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan has not endorsed fellow Republican Burt Jones' run to replace him. It doesn't look like he will. Duncan was asked about it last night during an Atlanta Journal-Constitution event. I don't believe the election was rigged, and he does. And I just have a hard time, me and my family, if, with all that we've gone through, uh, to put our stamp of credibility uh, on, on a campaign. Duncan is referring to death threats his family received in the days after the 2020 election as former President Donald Trump and his allies falsely claimed Trump won Georgia. A spokesman for the campaign of Burt Jones had a one-word response. Quote, who? The Trump-backed Jones is a state senator. Duncan is the president of the state senate and the two butted heads over Georgia's presidential election results. Finally, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation has identified the murder in a Dade County cold case going back nearly 34 years. In partnership with FBI offices in Atlanta, Baltimore, and Detroit, GBI investigators used DNA testing to determine that Henry Frederick, Henry Frederick Weiss killed Stacy Lynn Charhorsky of Norton, Norton Shores, Michigan, in 1988. At the time of her murder, she was in Rising Fawn, Georgia. Now, her remains were identified earlier this year. At a press conference yesterday, Atlanta FBI Special Agent Carrie Farley said Weiss was a truck driver who committed the crime along his regular route. He also had a criminal record in the southeastern U.S. and died in a stunt car accident in 1999. Investigators found what was believed to be the killer's DNA at the scene, but for years it could not be linked to a person. Once the FBI became involved, the DNA was traced back, and the investigation revealed Weiss had a living family member who was interviewed, cooperated, and a DNA match was confirmed. Joe Montgomery, who is GBI, a GBI special agent for Northwest Georgia, says an exact motive does remain unknown, but the way DNA testing was used in the case is believed to be the first of its kind. So this is the first time in the country we've, or we've ever used this to identify both the victim and the killer. So, I mean, that, that to me is incredible because as an agent, you live with these cases. Montgomery added his region's office has solved four other cold cases in the past four years. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.com. 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Coming out of Duke University, well, there's a report, a study that centers around understanding the full cost of child poverty. And researchers are making a are making a connection based on wealth and income information, as well as, quote, cognitive and behavioral data of children ages three to 17 years, close quote. There's a lot to unpack here. And that's why we wanted to invite Christina Gibson Davis, who's a professor of public policy and sociology at Duke's Sanford School of Public Policy. And also that's an affiliate of the Center for Child and Family Policy. Professor Gibson Davis, welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you so very much for, for having me. I really appreciate the, the chance to talk. Before we get into the research, let's get a little background for our listeners on the Center for Child and Family Policy. It sounds like it's self-explanatory, but what are you all examining there in that institution? Yeah, so the, the Center for Child and Family Policy is basically concerned with issues that affect children and families. Um, they have a lot of focus on those kids and families who might be most vulnerable. Um, so we think about people who might be economically distressed or, or families of color um, and sort of what are the policies that make their lives either easier or harder and how can we sort of um, help improve their lives through a public policy lens. And I want to define at least one term that our listeners will hear a lot throughout this conversation. I want to start with net worth poverty. Yeah, that's a that's a great question because um, not too many people have heard of it. So that's part of what we're trying to do with this study. And other work is just call attention to this kind of poverty that we think has been basically ignored up until now. So it's just important to know what net worth is. Net worth is just a synonym for wealth. And wealth is different than income. So mm -hmm. when people think about income, for most people, that's like the money that you earn on your job. So you can think about cash that mm -hmm. comes into your household. Wealth or net worth, on the other hand, are assets minus debts. So for most families in America, your primary asset is the value of your house, right? So that's so that's our primary example of an asset. And a debt would be money that you owe for credit cards mm -hmm. or for education loans or medical loans. So when we talk about wealth or net worth, we're really talking about something that's different than income. You can think about wealth or net worth as like the store of stuff that you have, mm -hmm. how much, how many assets you have, and then you take away your debts. And at the core of this study, this research was, and I'm going to quote you all here, to find how children are affected by net worth poverty. That's right. So in the United States, uh, the way we, we when we talk about poverty, we usually mean income poverty. Mm -hmm. And we talk about how much cash families have. And if you don't have enough cash, then we say that you are poor, you're income poor, right? Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. But we were interested to think about, well, we know that people also use their wealth to make decisions and their wealth informs how they feel financially. So we thought, well, what about people who don't have enough wealth? What about people who are net worth poor? Mm -hmm. Are there consequences of that for the well-being of kids? And so that was sort of our primary question is, how does being net worth poor affect the well-being of children? And we should note for folks that are wondering, the current poverty line as defined by the federal government in 2020 for a family of four, and this is not a surprise to you, obviously, it's $27,750. As one of my producers pointed out, I can't imagine 
what it's like for a family of four trying to run a household with a family of four for $27,750. But that is how the federal government has the, the current poverty line. And, Professor, for folks who may not understand this, can you explain mm-hmm. how that is determined, how they come up with this? Sure. So the so this is one of, I, I teach this in one of my classes and students are always really surprised to find out about the income poverty line. It mm-hmm. actually derives from 1963 um, when the federal government basically wanted to know how much money would it cost for a family of four to feed itself. They figured out this amount. Mm-hmm. They also figured out that most families spend about one third of their budget on food. So they took the amount of money they thought it would feed them for a family to feed itself multiplied it by three and that is the income mm-hmm. poverty line so it's um there are a lot of criticisms of the line because it it's a really a 1963 standard in mm-hmm. a 2022 world and i've heard i've had this conversation with people who said you know it needs to change now trying to get everybody on this program to talk about the their changes with the different opinions that's been a task but we're gonna get it at some point so <laughs> but you're right it, it it is it is debatable now i want to go back to this research that you all conducted, because this has been going on, you all took some time with this, correct? There was a team of researchers, correct? Yes, there there are a team of researchers. I have uh, two great colleagues, Lisa Keister and Lisa Genetian, and a, and a PhD student, Warren Lowell, who helped me with this. This was a joint effort, um, because I think it's important to realize that this this kind of poverty that we're talking about, it affects way more kids than income poverty. So income poverty, if you want to think about it, is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. And we're sort of talking about the tip, the other part of the iceberg that's beneath the water, which is net worth poverty. And so when you're talking about how we're going to study net worth poverty, what are the metrics used? Because is it going to be different than when we just talk about that the, the blanket umbrella of poverty? Yep. So what the way we think about whether a house is net worth poor, we take that federal poverty line, which you were just talking about, and we divide that in four. And so, and then we compare people's wealth levels to that threshold. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Basically what it means is if you have less, if you're a family of four and you have less than $6,600 in wealth, which as I was saying earlier is assets minus debts, then we consider you net worth poor. Mm-hmm. Because we sort of um, just defined it relative to the poverty line, it basically means you don't have enough resources to sustain your way of life for three months is another way to think about it. So if you have wealth levels less than $6,600, you're considered net worth poor. And how did you all, what information, I understand what you're saying. So for listeners who said, okay, I get that. But for this study, what were you all extrapolating and pulling out before we get to the interventions and and what your analysis came up with? So do you mean what what did we actually study? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about, but within that net worth poverty, what exactly were you looking at? Well, so what we have a we have a big nationally representative data source. So this is a, a data source that's been going on for a long time, and they basically ask households and their kids, "How much wealth do you have? How much income do you have? And how are your kids doing?" And then we just sort of com- we identified those families that were mm-hmm. net worth poor and said, "How are their kids doing?" And as it turned out, their kids were not doing so great. Hmm. What does this say to you all in terms of when we hear, and I know you've heard this when folks talk about the systemic ongoing, whether it's through policy or or other quality of life issues that impact households based on, and and again, we have a whole other show on this, based on what happened, whether it's the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the turn of the century, all of that. Are we looking at the same type of systemic issues that lead to net worth poverty for many of these households? 
That's right, because one of the things we know is that wealth passes from generation to generation. So mm -hmm. you might get an inheritance or not get an inheritance from your parents. You might be able to live in your parents' house or not live in your parents' house. So this is not a new phenomenon. Um, but we, what we do know is that net worth poverty is actually increasing over time, whereas income poverty is decreasing over time. So more kids are net worth poor today than say 30 years ago, whereas fewer kids are income poor today than say 30 years ago. You all talked about in, in this in terms of, okay, what are the interventions? You know, and again, it's not, there's no magic solution here. If it was, we, we would know what it was. But you all talk about some interventions and things that can happen. And I imagine, it's, does it start at, a, at the policy levels that we're talking about here? That's right. It does. And, and, and our first and our first sort of um, point is just to get people to recognize that this is a group of economically vulnerable children. Mm -hmm. So our first step is just to say, hey, folks, it's not just people who are income poor. It's also people who are net worth poor. So let's sort of pay attention to them as well. Um, and then second, we'd really like to see some policies that maybe are targeted specifically to net worth poor kids. So most of our policies today are targeted to income poor kids, and that's great. We don't want to take away from those policies at all. The problem is, is if you only target income poor kids, you miss all the kids who are net worth poor as well, because they're actually two different groups of people. So we really want to start thinking about how can we help these kids who maybe haven't received a lot of policy attention, but may be at risk for adverse outcomes. And actually, and I do have a, a question from a listener, and it actually was it was on my my mind too in terms of, and we may know the answer to this, but when we talk about who are the communities that this is mostly affected by, we can break it down by race, you can break it down by urban rural, but I'll let yes. you tell the listeners. Yes, so we, uh, you know, so I probably don't have to tell you or your listeners. Um, that wealth is not distributed equally in this country, um, that the color of your skin matters a lot. So the rate of net worth poverty among African-American children is about 60%, which is about three times as high as it is among white children. So it is not surprising, um, or I should say it's unfortunate that the rates of net worth poverty are so high among African-Americans relative to other groups. Mm -hmm. And again, not surprising there. So let's talk about interventions and and possible solutions and models. And again, we're not going to get this solved in the, in the next minutes that we have with this. But if you want folks to understand when we talk about then how do we begin to address it after the acknowledgement, acknowledgement yep. of these kids that you just mentioned. Now we got to get into solutions and inter interventions. We talked about policy, but mm -hmm. specific policies. What are you all suggesting here? So, so there are some specific policies that um, perhaps are encouraging. Um, so some folks have talked about so-called baby bonds, which is giving kids right after they're born some savings that can then be used for education. Um, you can think about um, uh, the EITC or other programs that give large infusions of cash that people can then use to mm -hmm. put in their savings account, right? That's a kind of wealth, so that would also be beneficial. Perhaps some kind of reparations program um, basically programs that really seek to build up the assets of, mm -hmm. of families and not just so that they have some kind of economic buffer. We have done a lot of segments on guaranteed income programs. Uh, we looked yep. at one in Mississippi. There are several here in pilot uh, phase right here in Georgia. There's one here mm -hmm. in Atlanta that's focusing on certain neighborhoods. And from what we were able to gather with our information, they are they work. They are beneficial. 
It's not mm-hmm. some form of of welfare, as many people will email and say, well, isn't that just a form of welfare? But we talked to a woman who said just having an extra $800 a month means so much for her household because she's able to maybe provide child care. Take an extra course online to help sure. get her a better, a better chances of getting a better job. Things like well, that. I think- yeah, I think about when, you know, when my own family, when we have economic crises and there's an unexpected expense, it's really stressful, right? And it affects how I interact with my husband or with my children. And if we didn't have money in our savings account, what would we do? So it makes sense to me that if you provide people with some kind of economic buffer, they just feel better. And people who feel better make better parents and may have kids who have better outcomes. Before we let you go, Professor, what is the other takeaway you want listeners to know from this, the the research that you all have been able to do here with this? Well, if if people can understand that we are really trying to broaden how we think about poor kids and not just think about them in terms of income, but really think about this broader lens. So most kids who are poor in this country are going to experience net worth, not income poverty. And so if we can start to think about targeting that group and not ignoring a large segment of kids who are poor, we would be very happy. But also, too, you you all have a, a connection here when we talk about lower cognitive scores and increases mm-hmm. in problem and behavior scores in children. Yes. That's right. So what we found is that kids who are net worth poor don't do as well in terms of, and by cognitive, we just mean reading and math mm-hmm. tests. And by behavior problems, we just mean, does the kid act out or is the kid depressed? So those are just kind of fancy academic terms for those kinds of issues. But basically what we found is kids who are net worth poor, particularly if they also experienced income poverty, didn't score as well on reading and math and maybe had more problem behavior problems than kids who are not poor at all. So it suggests that there are consequences for being net worth poor. Mm -hmm. And again, we know this about income poverty. We know income poverty is bad for kids. Mm -hmm. So we're just trying to say, yeah, there's also consequences for being net worth poor. Who should pay attention to this report? Policymakers, although, you know, as we all know, it's a bit distracted right now in Washington, but we'd really like it serious. We'd really think it would be great if people could take this problem more seriously. And it's not just because these kids are sort of in distress, but it's also because these kids are going to grow up and be adults, right? Mm -hmm. And so we want them to flourish. We want them to do as well as they possibly can. So if we're committed to sort of the well-being of America tomorrow, it really behooves us to pay attention to how these kids are doing today. And so we would love it if policymakers could think more seriously about the problem of net worth poverty. Christina Gibson Davis, professor of public policy and sociology at Duke's Sanford School of Public Policy and affiliate of the Center for Child and Family Policy. We'll have a link to your report on our website as well. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Fascinating conversation. Good conversation. Thank you so very much for having me. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. This is very interesting. A Children's Healthcare of Atlanta study found that school-age children can accurately accurately self-swab for COVID-19 tests as compared to folks who spend a lot of money on medical school, or we could say conducted by healthcare professionals. Now, Dr. Wilbur Lamb is a pediatric hematologist and oncologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. He's also a professor at the Emory University School of Medicine in Georgia Tech. He joins me now to share more about this new study. Welcome, doctor. I appreciate you taking time. 
Thanks for having me. So there's some little kids right now going, see, Mom, see, <laughs> I can do it by myself. But let's take a step back. Um, are there FDA-approved self-swab tests available just for kids right now or just we're just not yeah, there that's yet? A, that's a good question. So not quite there yet. In fact, uh, when we did this whole study, it was really to answer the question you, you kind of posed. You know, could we actually see if kids could could test themselves and how young of a kid could test themselves adequately. So what we did was actually use the standard PCR testing. So we, when we started this, the whole reason we wanted to use PCR testing is because that's the, the standard. So what we're doing now is trying to get to your question, you know, mm-hmm. can, can self-tests at home be done with kids? And we're talking to the FDA about this right now. So kind of the sequel to the first movie, if you will. <laughs> that would be fascinating. Before you walk us through how this study was conducted, I, I kind of know more about the instructions that you provided to kids for this self-swabbing. What did it include? And well, first of all, what age group here? Because I love kindergartners, but I don't, you can't tell a kindergartner to put something in their nose and, and expect some good results here. So I imagine yeah, we're a little it, older. <laughs> well, no, we, we, we really pushed it. Uh, so we, we had kids as, as old as 14 um, and as young as four. Really? Uh, really? Yeah. The, those kids, as kids as young as four, if you give them a brief video, which we showed on YouTube, and you know, kids age four are experts at YouTube, right? So, true. To some ex- so to some extent, <laughs> it was, they're the perfect audience. Uh, just showing them a little instructional video uh, made on made via YouTube, and and then we showed kids that are younger a picture instructions, and we were very careful not not to really try and influence them. And then we had them swab themselves, and then our uh, healthcare providers swabbed after that, and then we compared the results. And really, it showed that eight kids as young as age four could adequately swab themselves, get enough sample, and the results were pretty much the same between what they did and what the healthcare providers did. And that's a blanket result from the kids that you break it up by age group that said the four year olds were here and the 12 year olds were there. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, did all these different age groups, uh, ages four to 14. And then you know, 98% of the time, uh, they were completely spot on with, with each other. So it was it was pretty good. And we tested almost 200 kids. I'm curious, was the YouTube, was it animation? Was it uh, almost like an, a regular instructional video where it, you have oh, yeah. real folks doing all? Because, you know, I, I, I think I respond more to animation. That says a lot about me, but that's just me. Well, you know what this actually was, was it was, you could call it peer review, Rose, because it was a video of kids doing it. So kids got to see kids do it. So it was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a brilliant design by our groups at Emory and at Georgia Tech and Children's South Carolina, where they said, oh, what's the right way to do this? And it was only 30 seconds, because obviously if you did it too long, you know, their attention spans would, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't account, wouldn't be able to do that. I mean, my attention spans couldn't handle it. Only 30 seconds. I had to... I hate using the term, but it is Google uh, a better recipe for making my Brussels sprouts. And I still got it wrong, but because I want them to be crispy. And by the way, if you're listening, I just need a better recipe for my Brussels sprouts to be crispy. Uh, Let's go back to the video, though. 30 seconds. Did any of the kids say, can I see it again? Can you play it again? Or was once enough? 
Yeah, so we we only showed the, the video once, and and I, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Actually, it's 90 seconds, but uh, but just once was all was needed, and then a handout with uh, pictures and written instructions that were age appropriate, and and that was it. Now and that after makes a the difference. Instructions were given. 90 it seconds. Does. It does. Yeah. Yeah, 90 seconds it does. It does. But they were able to watch the whole thing. So so that's that 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 was one thing we we kept track of. With the instructions and the feedback from the kids, did you get, hey, it was pretty easy, or did some find it a pretty confusing? Uh, probably not if you got ninety eight percent match here. No, we uh, by and large, most kids did really well. Uh, What was interesting is that we asked our healthcare providers to kind of just take notes, uh, really kind of stepping aside and seeing how the kids do. What they noticed was that kids less than the age of eight, which you would expect, probably didn't do as well, at least just qualitatively from the perspective of the healthcare worker. Mm -hmm. However, the the data, the results actually showed that that didn't matter. So even if a kid younger than eight looked like they messed up a little bit, it didn't matter. They still got enough virus on that swab that showed that it was adequate from from the test perspective. So we thought that was pretty interesting. I want to shift for a moment because I imagine someone listening says, well, doctor, this is pretty cool, but why did you all want to know this? Yeah. Well, the whole reason is because when we started this study almost over a year ago now, we were really challenged as a as a community, as the medical community and even the, the public with how to implement large-scale testing, really thinking about schools. Mm -hmm. And just the logistics of that, we said, wow, it'd be a lot easier if kids were able to swab themselves, even if they were able to give the swabs to their teachers. But that was the first question, you know, can a kid actually swab himself, herself, and at what age uh, is, is appropriate? So that was why we really dug into this, because now this really does set the stage for new policies, you know, if and when schools want to implement, you know, large scale testing, or if we want to do it even in the community, mm-hmm. we now have the capability, the justification, the scientific data to show that, yeah, young kids could could adequately do this, uh, t- swap themselves when they're testing for COVID-19. Let me ask you, were you surprised by that 98% match there? I, I, I was, I was. I mean, uh, I have, uh, my kids are teenagers now, but I remember when they were younger and you know, they didn't follow directions too great, <laughs> but <laughs> but it is it is good to know that uh, the scientific data actually does give a little bit of reassurance. In fact, our FDA colleagues were so reassured they even changed their policies, allowing uh, for PCR tests to, to say yes, uh, we we can enable kids as young as age four to self swab themselves. And this is with the nasal swab, correct? Where you correct, and then you do the dropper and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, well, we just looked at the swabbing them, uh, itself, right? Uh, oh, so just the swabbing. The the drop. Okay, so right? they didn't because do it's the... the, it's the ah, mm-hmm. I think that's important right, that we right. let folks know that. So they just did the nasal swab. They didn't take the, the drops and then close the little thing and all that. that. Yeah, yeah. So how good was the swabbing itself? So all these subsequent questions are, are things that we're looking at now, right? Can, can they swab themselves at home? Mm-hmm. Can they... Uh, can or are they swabbing as good as the parents how good are the parents right we can even ask that question uh so home-based testing is really where we're focused on now with these subsequent studies but i want to make sure for our listeners too you are also suggesting that look there is some caution when we talk about some of the youngins even though you said as young as four but they are four they only been on the planet for four years so sometimes Mm -hmm. their decision making skills then some people are 40 their decision making skills (laughs) exactly you you do you do caution that though with some of the younger ones, right? 
of of course of course uh i mean what at the end of the day the study shows that when it comes to covid-19 testing kids as young as 4 when they swab it's as good as a healthcare worker and yes they were trained with a 90 second video and mm -hmm. they were able to uh, look at some instructions whether they've read them or not right we we didn't really judge that um, so yes they certainly were trained but in a self trained manner Besides how this might be some type of insight into if there needs to be large-scale testing in schools or the community at large, what are, what are the t takeaway for you with this study that these kids, some as young as four, can do their own swabbing as it relates to other areas of our health and wellness? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the implications are, are much broader than COVID-19. You know, what the pandemic has taught us is that Self-testing is here to stay. Home-based testing, community-based testing, school-based testing is here to stay. And this really sets the stage, gives us some precedent that, yeah, kids can, can swab themselves for COVID-19, but likely for other diseases as well. So it really does set the stage for those other infections uh, that might be coming around the corner and other diseases that we could possibly test. And Dr. Lim, as we begin to wrap up, and I do have some more questions, but I just want to shift also and get your thoughts on just how far, you know, how far we have come. Obviously, we've come a long way when you go back to two years ago um, and, and not just in testing, but all the other optics around, you know, how the, we as a nation has have approached COVID-19 as it relates to children and our youth. Your pediatricians, I know there were concerns that you had. So when you look at how this nation rolled out all of this as it relates to our youngest population, how would you assess it? Yeah, I, I think overall, I, I'd say we, we did okay. Uh, could things have been better? Well, of, of course, things could always be, be better. But I think we rolled out testing as quickly as we could. We rolled out the vaccines as quickly as we could and made sure that they were, and we did it in a rigorous enough way to make sure that they were safe for our kids. And then uh, just moving forward, I think uh, being able to test kids in their communities, in their schools uh, for different diseases, that that's huge. And I'm really, uh, really glad that we as a medical and scientific community were able to do what we were able to do. Was there some things we could have done better, you think? as it relates to that population? Well, we, uh, we, we could always have done, done things uh, faster, uh, but you know, we were always trying to strike the balance between moving too fast and making, we were making sure that we were doing things in a scientifically rigorous way compared to just immediately jumping in. So I don't fault anyone. It's just you know, things could always, uh, always move faster because we, we obviously do know that COVID-19, especially for unvaccinated kids, uh, could be dangerous. And we have lost a few, even a few of my patients that I've seen, uh, we've lost to COVID-19. Could we have done better? I'm not sure, but it mm -hmm. sure would have been nice if, if things uh, were moving as quickly as they did. Would have been better if they, we moved even even quicker. But I think overall, you know, I, I think we did okay, uh, given given what we were facing. Mm -hmm. And if we were able to do it again, I think we, we've taken a lot of lessons learned, especially from the testing side, that if another pandemic comes, I do think that we'll be able to handle this in a much more efficient manner and uh, in regards to testing and in regards to vaccines and therapies. Dr. Lamb, and I'm so sorry, obviously, for, for you and the family. You mentioned those kids you've all lost. Was this prior to vaccines being available for those kids? It was. Okay. It, it, it was. And uh, so that's just unfortunate. Uh, but 
it was a new disease. Mm-hmm. And we, we were still trying to figure out, you know, what it would even do for kids. You know, that I, I remember those days where, you know, is it like the flu? And then uh, there were these complications with MISC, uh, which hit, hit a, a certain certain minority of kids, but we didn't know why. Uh, so those were those were certainly uncertain times. And I do think that we we overall have, have done okay. We're coming around the bend and we'll, we'll be able to handle it better as a medical and scientific community the next time something like this comes. Well, and that leads to this question, what's next? Because are, are, there, are there plans to study this on a wider scale or with different instructions and focusing on either the same age group or, or you know, even a different population? Yeah. So what's next is exactly the questions that you posed in the very beginning. You know, how how well can kids swab themselves with these rapid tests? You know, could, could we do this at home? And then really thinking forward towards all these other diseases, you know, self-testing and pediatric self-testing, mm-hmm. we think is here to stay. So we every time a new disease comes, we'll be exploring that and we'll be really pushing the boundaries of this kind of whole decentralization of disease diagnosis for kids and for populations who need it the most. I mean, one thing that we've learned too is that underserved populations, Mm -hmm. uh, they're the ones who really need this testing and they don't have access. So can we do this? So this is one possibility of being able to deliver testing to the community. So self-testing, we think, has the ultimate potential of helping the underserved population. And that's one major driver of our science. And finally, Dr. Lamb, where where do you hope we are as a nation a year from now with this? Yeah, well, you know, COVID-19 has always thrown us curveballs, so mm-hmm. so we can never predict exactly what will happen. But it does seem like we as a nation, because we have great, uh, decent tests now, we have uh, vaccinations and we have therapies that we're probably able to to, to get out of this in a reasonable way. Uh, COVID-19 hopefully will become much like the flu where we get a new vaccine every every year. And we here at Emory and Georgia Tech and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta are also working in direct uh, collaboration with the NIH and FDA to make sure the tests still work You know, mm-hmm. every time there's a new variant. So we're very cognizant that COVID will change and we'll change with it. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up. And that, it just another question pops in my mind then, because when you all conducted these tests, what was the dominant variant? Yeah, that's a great question. So we started this in 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 the summer of last year. So it was the Delta. So mm-hmm. that's why that's why we're repeating a lot of these studies, not only because of um, the need to assess how well kids can swab themselves with rapid tests, but also in light of the new Omicron variants, the is the data still the same? We hope it is, but you know we need to get that data to prove that. Dr. Weber Lamb is a pediatric hematologist and oncologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and professor at the, at the Emory at the Emory University School of Medicine and Georgia Tech. Fascinating study. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thanks for having me. A closer look from WABE in Atlanta continues. I'm Rose Scott. Now, earlier in the program, we told you about a decades-old unsolved case that is no longer unsolved. 
due to new technology involving DNA, it was determined that Henry Frederick Weiss killed Stacy Lynn Trahorsky of Northern Shores, Michigan in 1988. At the time of her murder, she was living in Rise or she was in Rising Fawn, Georgia. Now, there are still many unsolved cases for the GBI, and that includes what happened on September 4th, 1998 in Udilla, Georgia. That's when eight-year-old Shaikima Pate, nicknamed Shy Shy, went missing. In 2017, I spoke with Veronica Pate, Laswanda Hickey, Latonda Freeman, Shy Shy's mothers, her mother, her sister, and her aunt. It was it was on a Friday night, September 4th. They was getting ready to go to the football game. Mm-hmm. So Swanda had called because she had to be at school by a certain time. So I called one of my friends and I told her to watch for her and told her that I'll take her when I get home. Mm-hmm. But she never did come home. We never did see her. But we didn't have no idea that she was even missing or nothing until Swanda got home and said where she asked me where she was at. And I was like, she's not here. So then she was like, Mama, she wasn't at the game. Who, so then. Well, who, let's back up a little bit. So, Laswanda, were you supposed to take Shy Shy to the game? Right. She was supposed to ride with me from Unadilla back to Vianna. I was um on the color guard mm-hmm. and um, I had a. I came from school in Vianna, because we don't have one high school in the county. Mm-hmm. And she was going to the elementary school in Adela. So I was supposed to pick her up from after, you know, I got back. Mm-hmm. And she was around to um, a friend's house that she had walked home from school with. And I got her and took her home and got her dressed and and everything. And um, she was waiting for me to get dressed. And she went down the street. Walked down the street, and I was supposed to, you know, I was going to pick her up. She was going back to a friend's house? A different friend. A she different she friend. was at a different friend's house when she went down the street. Um, as I was finishing getting ready, she just walked down the street. You know, nothing big, nothing major. Where we from, it was, you know, no. not unheard of for kids to just walk up and down the street. Because everybody knew everybody. Nobody's going to really bother you, you know. So when I rode down the street, I saw her on the porch mm-hmm. at the other friend's house. And I went to put gas in the car. And um, then we went back to pick her up, and they said she left walking up the street towards home because um, she thought I left her because she saw me ride by mm-hmm. going the opposite direction. She thought I left her, and um, as I rode back up the street, I didn't see her. Nobody knew where she went. Nobody saw her, and I haven't seen her since. And Veronica, that morning, was it just a typical morning? Um you were getting ready for work. They were all, I mean, look, Friday, a Friday night, fall in Georgia, football, small towns, big game, everybody's getting ready for just a typical day for you all? Well, that's, that's we, that Tuesday, she had just came home from the hospital. Mm-hmm. So she went to school that Thursday, and, that Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So that Friday morning we got up, she said, Mom, I don't feel like walking to school. Can you carry me to school? So I carried her to school on my hip, got her to school, walked in the classroom. And I left to go to class. And after class, we had to go down to the family children's service for an intern for receptions. Mm-hmm. So I be there till 5 o'clock. And that was the last time I saw my baby at 7.30 that morning. I haven't seen her since. When I spoke to the GBI agent, and he said he, you know, he couldn't even imagine what a parent, what a family is going through. When I when she called, well, like I said, when she got home and told us that she wasn't there, we 
we went looking. So I called some of my friend that I know she would go to their house. Mm-hmm. Nobody had seen her. No, um, one of my friends said she did see her and she asked her to take her. She said she told her she was going home and she wasn't going. So she was like, I wish I would have just got her. I said, but you know, it well, wasn't for you to get her that day. When did you, obviously you were concerned mm-hmm. when y'all couldn't find her, but after the first 24 hours and then another day. And another day. It get harder and harder every day. And it's, it's fearless. It's, it's very fearless. And like I said, when I first called off the police, they told me that a, a child, well, they said a person had to be missing 24 hours before they'll come out. Mm-hmm. But I had another friend, which she called, raising sand and going off and everything. So the officer, he did come. Mm-hmm. He took the statement. He took the name. But he didn't do anything. But she was eight years old. She was so young. He didn't even report it. So the next day, DFAC showed up at my house. So one of the ladies that were from the DFAC office, we was friends, you know, and she was like, well, why they called us? I said, maybe they think I would have neglected them mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. I said, but the police ain't came. So it was a um, preacher, a pastor. He um, was a former um, or ex-federal agent. Mm-hmm. He got on the phone and he called some of his friends and then everybody started showing up. But all my friends and family and people in the community had already started searching for her. So they were like, even if they could have got a scent or a trail, mm-hmm. they had messed it up. They, you know, it was messed up by the people in the community. But we didn't have no other support but the people in the community. And you feel like then law enforcement in that area wasted so much time by not immediately, immediately looking for Shy Shy. Yes. Rotana, let me bring you back into the conversation. What was that? Take us back to when everyone is looking for Shy Shy. Did you feel like we're just going to find her? Maybe she's at a friend's house and fell asleep? Or, or? I, at that time, I was in I was in Detroit. I was at work, and I got off of work that night at 11, and I just got all the phone calls telling me that she's missing, like they can't find her. And for me not being able to be there, I was more I was concerned, like, why can't I get to where my sister at because she need me? Mm-hmm. And so they told me, like, okay, you, you don't have to come right then. But I kept calling. I kept wanting to know, well, who else looking for her? What else could we do? And even the sheriff department, they told me, they was like, it's nothing that you can do at this moment. We here, we looking. Everyone in the city opened up their house. They let us go through every room in their house, um, all over their land. They had so many people come in with different um, four-wheelers and stuff so they could do grid searches at a time. And he was like, just the community itself showed up when no one else did. And I was, you know, I was thankful for that. But I wasn't there when she actually came up missing. Laswanda, you were one of the last people to see your your baby sister alive how often do you replay that moment where you're driving by her you just got to get some gas and I should have stopped and got her all the time every day now next week on the program we're going to revisit our conversation with 
the GBI investigators assigned to the case and Shai Shai's family. We're going to revisit those conversations. And then again, back in 2017, I spoke with agent, agent then Agent Jason Shadow with the Georgia Borough Investigation. And we talked about how we could do things differently um, during this time as opposed to in 1998 when she went missing. And here's a little bit of that conversation. Agent, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Shai Shai's case should receive some national attention now in terms of maybe sending more information out to neighboring bureaus in, in neighboring states? Well, particularly in this case, there are there have been a lot of references made to, um, you know, her possibly being located outside of, of our state. Um, you know, there, and there's and especially in missing persons cases, and, and that's what we have here is a missing persons case. So we are trying to make to determine what happened to her. So right now she's missing. She could be living somewhere in some other state and not realize it. Um, I mean, there are several cases where kidnappers will keep their victims alive for, you know, decades. I mean, we've, we've experienced that here very recently in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea would be to try to get that information out to as many people as you can. I mean, obviously, information... Um, you know, and communication in cases like this is critical. Um, so the more people that you can reach out to, the more people that can see her, um, can only benefit an investigation, um, especially a missing persons case like this. Um, and so obviously anybody that we can talk to now, um, even if it's just a small piece of information, you know, we're trying to put this big puzzle together. So every little piece of that puzzle uh, is crucial. And again, we hope to have the latest regarding the 1998 disappearance of Shakima Pate. We've been in touch with the GBI, and we hope to have an update on whether or not this case is still open. That's next Tuesday on Closer Look. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. So send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.